We're going to start in, well, okay, we're going to try to go through John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Okay, listen, I don't, I don't know what this is going to look like by the time it's over, because this was a little way too personal for me trying to go through this passage, okay? And it messed with me all week. I'm just warning you up front, this could get a little messy before it's over, okay? So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, I'll start by reading it. Hopefully I can do this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as beggars were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, oh, it is he. And others said, oh, no, he looks like him. And he kept saying, the man kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And the man said, I do not know. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that is there and everything that you have to show us this morning. Oh Lord, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart. Open the eyes of our minds. Open the eyes of our souls. If necessary, Lord, lay us bare before you so that we will receive you and see you. And Lord, I pray specifically that you would anoint my mouth the way you anointed that man's eyes so that I speak nothing but what you would have said this morning. And I ask it, Father, knowing that you desire to give good gifts to your children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is just, there's just, uh, this was really tough because, see, the problem, the challenge is how do I explain to this passage to you because you can't really understand the 12 verses without understanding the whole chapter, okay? And so the main point of chapter 9 is at the very end where Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see me may see and those who see may become blind. That's the main point of the whole chapter, okay? And so so it's hard to understand this whole these 12 verses without understanding all of that in the context of chapter 9 as a whole. Yet, these verses 
are really hard to understand or that verse, the main meaning of the chapter, verse 39, it by itself is hard to understand without the previous 38 verses and understanding what they mean. So we will just have to hold on to some ideas and the rest will become plain to us as we walk through this chapter over the next couple of weeks. Okay. The first thing to understand is that here in verse 1, it is still the same day as the end of chapter 8 when Jesus has just said, before Abraham was, I am. He walks out of the temple and on his way out the door, he sees this guy sitting on the side begging. This exact same day, in fact, the reality that it follows chapter 8 and follows Jesus' claim that I am, this event, everything that's happening here in chapter 9 is an exclamation point on his claim to I am. In fact, everything he says about claiming to be God is here proved in this chapter. We can hear Jesus saying, oh, you don't think I am? Well, I will prove you I am. Watch this. It's the Jewish sanctified version of here, hold my beer. And watch what I'm about to do. He's about to show them I am. Because I'm going to go do something that ain't nobody ever done and can't do unless you are God. Watch this. But before we can get to that part, we've got to deal with this whole verse 2 by itself, which is a big mess. Oh, my Lord, what a mess. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like, to us as modern Western readers or even as a casual reader, the disciples' question is perplexing. Like, what... Why would you think he's blind because he sinned? Where where did that come from? Oh, that's right. Everything comes from something. And nothing ever comes from nothing. This idea that he had sinned or his parents had sinned and that was why the guy was blind, that comes from something they believed. That comes from something somebody said and they thought it was true. And Jesus... He's here to correct that problem. He's here to correct that lie. See, by this time that Jesus and walking past this blind man, by that time, an entire theology had developed around life-altering events. Jewish teachers and writers had taken a verse from the Ten Commandments and built an entire theology around it to explain bad things happening to people. It was simple. Either the person sinned or their parents did. Well, where did this come from? What? Who said that? And it starts with Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Here, God is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Okay, wait, wait, whoa. This system has gone so far off the rails that they even believe someone could sin in the womb. Are you kidding me? It's one thing to be conceived in sin, but to actually sin while you're flipping around in your mom's womb? Are you kidding me? You got to be kidding me. You don't really believe that, do you? Well, they did, but not because they believed someone in the womb actually sinned. They were a little more, they sort of, sort of couched it. See, really, to be blunt, they believed in karma. They believed that in a previous life, someone sinned, and this was judgment for what happened then. Okay, wait a minute. God created me in my, in my mother's womb and knit me together, but I used to be in existence before then as I was somebody else and did something bad. Where did that come from? Nowhere in scripture, nowhere, none. But yet they just created it just out of the blue to make sense because that's what they wanted it to make sense. And that's how they used it to make sense. That in a previous life they sinned and this was judgment for what happened. Nothing, nothing, nothing in the Old Testament supported such a paganistic thinking. But that didn't seem to matter to them. It fit, therefore they used it. And this idea that bad things happening to you were judgment against you and therefore you were a sinner and you needed to repent, it even came against the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul was maligned by his enemies and that was part of his Second Corinthian response. If you read through 2 Corinthians, you see how he talks about comfort. You talk about suffering. And he's saying, look, just because I'm suffering, this is not a sign that I'm a illegitimate apostle. That was the actual claim. Paul can't really be a, a legitimate apostle of Jesus because he's going through all these bad things and having all these suffering. The only reason anybody would have that much suffering and that much trouble and heartache is because they're a sinner and are not a true, legitimate apostle. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what all the Jewish teachers taught. But it was wrong. It was completely wrong. And Jesus is going to do lots of things here. And the first thing he's going to do is smash this lie. It has nothing to do with him. His sins are his parents. But there's more here about this wrong thinking. They seem to zero in on the negative part of this passage from Exodus, and they totally overlook the positive part. Look, the Lord says he will visit the iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, not those who love me. Those who are God-haters are the ones who are subject to this sort of judgment to the third and fourth generation. But look, they completely overlook the positive side of the passage. But in contrast to what I do with those who hate me, but to those who love me, I will show steadfast love to thousands of the generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
we all kind of somewhat grasp this idea because most of us can look back in our family heritage and there was a godly mother or father or grandfather or great-grandfather, great-grandmother, someone who was earnestly praying and caring for us and showing love to our heavenly father. And he looked at them and said, okay, you love me, therefore I will show my love to the thousand of generations. See, this is, verse 6 just didn't fit into their narrative, so we'll just overlook it. They completely forgot. I don't know how this happened. How, how, how do you go from Mount Sinai and the greatness and the mercy of God to this thing that's happening in Jesus's day where he's nothing but mean and judgmental? That God is, look, God is a God of mercy first and then judgment. That's throughout the Old Testament. Over and over in the Old Testament, it's God's boundless mercy and patience that is emphasized. And his judgment delivered only after great mercy and patience. However, all these Jewish teachers seem blind to his mercy and patience. And we all know experientially what happens when a person is blind to mercy and patience. Judgment and harshness. That's all they had left. So that's what they taught. And that's what they gave. Mm. It's easy to see all this in those guys, in those Jewish teachers. It's kind of sometimes hard to see it in ourselves. We can often be just as guilty as the disciples in these situations. I mean, we jump to the idea that difficulties or hardship have entered into another believer's life because they have unconfessed and unrepented sin in their heart. That's why they're having so much trouble. However, we are blind to our own hypocrisy. We can't see our own hypocrisy. I found Calvin's words on this passage and this verse particularly stinging to my own hypocrisy. Calvin said, Since everyone is a sharp critic of others, few apply the same severity to themselves as they should. If things go badly with my brother, I at once acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastises me with a heavier blow, I overlook my sins. I'm not willing to hold myself to the same expectations and standards I want to hold everybody else to. You've got a cold, you sinned against God. I get the flu, it was just bad luck. That's not the way this, no. Am I willing to be as honest with myself as I want to be with everybody else? I had, you know, difficulties and hardships, uh, especially physical things. I have some personal experience on this subject. And I have to add here at this moment, it's particularly ironic to me that this very subject of difficulties not being from sin but for God's glory are on the subject of seeing and not seeing. It's a wee bit personal for me. I am constantly struggling with my own vision struggles. You guys know what happened to me earlier this year. My notes are in 18 font just so that I can see them. 
I had to switch to a large print Bible just so I could read it. And, and all of this is for his glory. <sighs> okay, Lord, but look, when's the glory coming? How, when, what way? How is this glorifying to you, especially when my healing is denied or delayed? How's it glorify God when your healing is denied or delayed? I don't know. He hasn't answered that question. But the answer for us is to hold judgment until God's purposes are revealed. In verse 3. And Jesus answered, it was not for this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is what Jesus is saying in part by neither, but that the works of God may be displayed. Here again, I found Calvin's words encouraging to me and my vision struggle. God sometimes has a purpose in mind other than punishing men's sins when he sends them afflictions. Consequently, when the reasons for afflictions are hidden, our curiosity must be restrained so that we may neither dishonor God nor be malicious to our brothers. In other words, don't make assumptions unless you've got the data to back up the assumptions. And then they're not assumptions. And unfortunately, as much as we would love to believe at times, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us exactly the issues struggling that are for those of us in front of us. He's probably not giving you as much insight into the other person as you think. And the place you should start is the mirror. So how is all this grace and mercy from God? How is this man being born blind and going through his entire infancy, early childhood, teenage years, and now even the young adult years blind? How is all this grace and mercy from God? How is it grace and mercy from Jesus or even grace and mercy from the Holy Spirit? How is it grace and mercy from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit when we have unpleasant stuff happening to us? I'll give you three answers to this question. How is mercy and grace? He uses us to display his glory. Well, that's self-evident. Jesus just said that. But listen, brothers and sisters, listen, we actually get to do something for Christ. We actually get to do something. We say all the time or we often will ask for him to do something, to use us to advance his kingdom. And we will ask him to use us, but then we're not okay with the way he uses us. Well, hey, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for that deal when I said use me to glorify your name. I didn't mean that. You know, I didn't know that that's what you meant. And if you'd have told me that ahead of time, I would have said, no, thank you. We become living sacrifices through our afflictions more than our victories. Paul tells us we're to be living sacrifices. And look, the most often times that is successfully executed is through our painful struggles, not necessarily the victory. We become living example to other believers and non-believers in Jesus. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, 
you see how different the saints died than the common person. And by different, I don't mean that their death was a different kind of death. They faced death with a confidence and a peace that was completely absent from those who did not know Jesus. The third way that this becomes grace and mercy from Jesus is he increases and extends his grace in us through both acute and chronic afflictions. I know a little bit about both of those. Often he's increasing our struggle, increasing our trust and reliance on him through the affliction. Listen, I've had to learn to trust him and rely on him a lot more. Not being able to do things that I used to be able to do, I have to learn to trust and rely on him. And I'm not, I'm talking about some basic like basic life living stuff. You got to like, I got, Lord, I got to really rely on you for this, which usually means, unfortunately for us guys, it means relying on someone else. I have to let my wife help me. I have to let you help me. I don't want you to help me. I want to do it myself. I want to do it. I want to be able to do it. No. I have to trust and rely on him and his provision, which almost always means someone else. And God is glorified by our learning to trust him. All right, so now getting on to the story itself, all that was just to set the stage. Jesus is glorified through blindness and mud. What? You've got to be kidding me. A bunch of mud is how Jesus brings glory to himself? Mud? I live in Elizabeth. I live on a dirt road. I'm very familiar with mud. There is never, ever anything glorifying about the mud in Elizabeth. Are you kidding me? You got to be kidding me. You're going to be glorified through mud. Yes, because the mud isn't just mud. It isn't just dirt. The mud is meant with a purpose to show us who he is. Remember, this event is an exclamation point on his statement, the I am. Here is the I am healing this man's blindness. And Jesus chooses to do it by using mud in his saliva. And they're not coincidental. This is him pointing back to places in the Old Testament. The mud in the saliva resembles the idea of clay being formed and molded by the potter for his purposes, which was, again, symbols of God's working in his people and sometimes using his people in certain ways that are not necessarily fun, but that's how he chose to use them. It's also the mud and the saliva beckons back to man's creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God said, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. When Jesus is forming the mud on the man's eyes, it's that beckoning back to the idea of God forming man out of the clay of the soil and breathing life into him. And this clay imagery points back to that. 
In fact, we can say that Jesus, with this act, he's saying, I am the one who formed and made man. I do what no other can do with this man's body. Clay imagery alludes to all the passages that refer to God forming vessels as well as creating man. And he's the only one that can do this. The I am is doing what nothing but the I am can do. Open the eyes of a man who was born blind. But there's also the elements of what this man himself had to respond to Jesus' working with the mud. This man had to trust and obey. In fact, while Jesus making blind and seeing is the key meaning of this chapter, I think trusting and obeying is the key meaning of this passage, of these 12 verses. The man had to trust Jesus' actions and his command to go wash in the pool of Shalom. I think it's important here to point out that the man had to trust and obey, not just for the miracle, but for the declaration and testimony of the miracle as well. When we look at the later passages, you'll see he has to trust and obey there as much as he does right now with this mud on his eyes. But he has to trust and obey for this man to actually go down to the pool of Shalom. And look, it's not, it's not like he was standing next to the pool of Shalom. If we can figure correctly which gate Jesus goes out of, and we know where the pool of Shalom is because we found it, or well, archaeologists have found it and uncovered it, or at least a portion of it. They're now uncovering the rest of it. The guy had to walk like a half mile from the gate to the pool with this mud on his eyes. Now, sure, he probably had someone helping him get there, but it's still this, I mean, you could imagine the way this plays out. Jesus puts the mud on his eyes and says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. What? What? I got some water here in a jug right beside me. Can't I just use that? No. You got to go to the pool of Siloam. But it's a, it's a half mile walk. You got to go to the pool of Siloam. This is the way it works. Okay, fine. We'll go to the pool of Siloam. Gary, grab my hand. Show me how to get there. See, he has to trust and obey God. He has to trust and obey Jesus to receive his sight. And also, this whole passage is an illustration of what it means to understand who Jesus is. Look at how this man starts out in verse 11. He says that Jesus is a man. He just refers to him as a man. That's all. Because Jesus says, the man who told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. But then in verse 17, the man now says that Jesus is a prophet. So Jesus has moved from being a man to a prophet in this time frame. And then his understanding continues to expand because in verse 31, the man says that Jesus is a worshiper of God who does God's will and God listens to him, right? It's one thing for a prophet, but prophets listen to God and tell you what God says. Jesus has now moved beyond the role of prophet because he talks to God and God listens to him. Then in verse 38, the man calls Jesus Lord and worships Jesus. We see the man's physical blindness was cured instantly, but his spiritual blindness was cured incrementally. He came to see Jesus as Christ through a process of belief, and so do we. All of us start out the same way. Jesus is a man. 
Oh, he's a good teacher. Well, he's actually someone who could do miraculous works of God. And he was a good teacher. And then we see him as Lord and worship him. The only difference, everybody goes through this process. Everybody, everybody, everybody. And by everybody, I mean everybody. The only difference is how fast you move through that process. Some people move through it really fast, like in hours. And other people move through it over years. It takes years for them to go from man to Lord. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. I mean, obviously it's better to get there quicker, like everything else. What matters is that your eyes are finally opened and you see him as Lord. Okay, so what? Thank you very much for this wonderful introduction to Jewish understanding of when bad things happen to good people. And thank you for explaining how Jesus corrects it. And But so what? Do you see? Do you see? Or more precisely, who do you see? Do you see Jesus as a man or as Lord? Is he a man, prophet, doer of God's will or Lord? Which one is he? Who do you see? And even if you say you see him as Lord, that is a vision of him that's not fully seen. Just because we see him as Lord, we still don't fully see him. No matter how much you see of Jesus, there is more to see and discover. So search on, brothers and sisters. Search on to see more. And when the Holy Spirit pulls back that veil and you get a new glimpse of Jesus and his glory, stop and enjoy it. Seriously, stop and enjoy that. It's a gift from God. Revel in what he has shown you. Soak in it like soaking in the love of God and drink every last of that cup when he hands it to you. And praise him. Praise him and thank him and glorify him for letting you see more of him. Lastly, for those of you who are in a difficulty or a hardship, submit yourselves to the examination of the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if you have unconfessed sin in your heart. It's possible. Yes, God does sometimes chastise us for the purpose of illustrating to us and showing, pulling back the veil, letting us see something in our hearts that needs to be confessed and repented of. So submit yourself to that process. Be willing to ask others, hey, I've looked at this and looked at this. Do you see something I'm missing? And when you've done that and the Lord does not reveal anything that needs to be confessed and repented of, Don't wallow in fear or despair that you're being punished. If you have nothing to confess and repent of, he's not punishing you. Don't live there because it's not true. It's false. Instead, hold on to the truth that God has a purpose in this affliction that is not punishment but glorification. Trust him, even though you can't see the reasons for this now. Trust and obey.
even in the middle of your pain. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you extend your mercy to the thousands of generations of those who love you. Thank you that you extend your mercy to us in our afflictions and in our pain, whether it's physical or emotional. Thank you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.